So I'd like to reflect this evening on some of what we've been doing and why we've been doing it. Engaging in this practice of the cultivation of loving-kindness, this practice of metta, meditation. The Buddha was once asked by his attendant and uh, disciple Ananda, would it not be true to say that half of our practice is for the cultivation of loving-kindness? And, and the Buddha responded, Ananda, he said, it would not be true to say this. It would be true to say that the whole of our practice is for the cultivation of loving-kindness. And this is, a, I think, an important and significant statement to understand that the, the spiritual journey can be framed from one perspective entirely in the context of the development and the fruition of loving-kindness. To bring forth from ourselves the fullness of our potential for caring and friendliness, to really abide in that capacity deeply and profoundly, is to equally come into the <coughs> depth of understanding of our life that is at the heart of all spiritual practice. To understand that we are not separate. We are not apart from anything <coughs> else that lives, that exists. That the sense of separateness that creates a boundary around our capacity to care, to connect, to love, is in fact an illusion, is in fact not ultimately true. To realize this is to realize the heart of the Buddha's teaching and the heart of the spiritual life. And on this retreat we've been focusing on the development of loving-kindness, the cultivation of this quality of caring, of friendliness that wishes well for another, wishes well for ourselves. Understanding that this caring, this kindness, this friendliness is something natural, is something innate, that is in fact an expression of the, the naturally awakened heart and mind which becomes obscured, which becomes covered over, which becomes limited or constrained by our habitual reactivity, by our habits and patterns of mind that lead us into ways of thinking, ways of conceiving, ways of acting that cause sorrow and suffering in our lives and a sense of limitation or disconnection, or a sense of constraint in our hearts, with a natural unbounded kindness and love that we can discover and know for ourselves, is not something we have access to, or we do not 
remember how to find access to it and we need to learn again. And so we practice and so we engage as we've been doing, turning towards that possibility, cultivating that capacity to wish well for another or ourselves, harnessing that kindness, that caring, that love that is there within us, that is perhaps not yet fully developed. And someone asked in a note about whether cultivating or seeking to develop something would be a sign that somehow something was wrong with us. And not at all, not so. It's more like seeing that we have a potential that can expand, that can develop. It's like there's nothing wrong with a small sapling growing in the ground. But we might wish to water it and protect it from weeds or from hungry herbivores such as sheep or deer or rabbits in order that it could grow from a small tender sapling into a strong and mighty tree that could withstand the, the tempests of life. And so here we can think of ourselves as developing something, as bringing forth something more fully, without having to somehow locate it in the framework and the habitual thinking of right and wrong, good and bad. More seeing that there's a direction of wholesomeness which we can undertake, which we can travel, thereby bringing more wholesomeness and well-being into our life and the life of others. And in doing this, to understand the relationship between our actions and our experience. The Buddha spoke of this again and again as a foundation, as a fundamental understanding for our life. <coughs> to see that how we act and the basis from which we act is what most significantly and profoundly affects how we experience our life. And so far as we act from kindness, from friendliness and from caring, from a sense of connection and concern for the life of others and ourselves, so long as we act from this place, this gives rise to the conditions, this supports the potential we have for happiness and for well-being. <coughs> it naturally follows from kindness that we feel at peace and at ease. When we find in ourselves that place, that capacity, we can relax and more and more deeply trust in our own wholesomeness. Then we can see that when we act from harshness, from cruelty, from reactivity, from anger, from condemnation, from judgment, from a sense of being distant or disconnected from others and therefore disregarding them, or from a sense of being distant or disconnected from ourselves or parts of ourselves and therefore disregarding ourselves, we can see how much suffering this causes, how much pain this causes. We can notice on a very immediate level during the practice how at times when we feel a sense of openness or warmth, how sweet that is, how beautiful, how natural, how familiar to us how we recognize it as something wholesome and sweet, and how at other times we experience reactivity or frustration or irritation or anger 
in the process of the practice and how that itself is painful. And how when we act on it, when we believe that somehow our reactivity is telling us the truth, the stories it's generating are true, we react against ourselves or in our minds we react against others, how painful that is. We can see this for ourselves. It's not something we have to believe because somebody else tells us about it. Of course, what easily happens then, and not so usefully, is that we start to grasp after the experience of feeling loving-kindness. We want to make ourselves have the experience. Or we resist or reject the experience of reactivity, of anger, of negativity, which sometimes arises quite naturally and understandably in the practice. And in that grasping and rejecting, of course, we don't really serve our well-being or the practice itself. What we need to understand is that there's a, a way in which this comes about. It's not an accident. It's not a, a random event. And turning our attention towards that which is wholesome, that which is beneficial, that which is of goodness or that which we can appreciate in ourselves and others, if we do this, what we notice in turning our attention in this way Quite naturally, we begin to orient towards a sense of friendliness, of kindness, of caring, of connection. When we emphasize, when we dwell upon, when we think about all the time the things that are not good enough, that are not acceptable, all the mistakes, all the failures, all the things that didn't go right in our lives, in our actions, in ourselves, then we can easily feel down on ourselves or angry towards ourselves or towards others. And so we're encouraged not to disregard those places which may well need attention, may well need to be taken care of. But we're invited, encouraged in this practice to turn towards the wholesome. To see that for most of us to find balance is actually to include a lot more airtime for that which is of what we could call the good news. If you look in the newspapers and were to cut out all the clippings about things that were good news and the things that weren't good news, how big a pile do you think you'd have in the, in the Sunday newspapers, which you may or may not be having the chance to look at and when you go home from the retreat? Not that I really want you to think too much about that now, but uh, I imagine the pile would be rather small of the positive good and happy things that were reported in the newspaper. And the pile would be rather large and wearying and hard to carry around of all the difficult, the negative, the tragic, the painful, the horrible, and the simply irritating things that have been reported. And so part of bringing balance to our life is bringing balance to the way we pay attention, learning to turn towards the sense of the wholesome, learning to trust in the sense of the goodness that is within ourselves and others, and to remind ourselves of this, to remind each other of this, is part of this practice. There's a beautiful poem by Galway Canal that speaks of this, called St. Francis and the Sow, which I'm sure some of you will have heard before. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that do not flower. For everything flowers from within, of self-blessing, 
Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely, until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. Just as St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch, blessings of earth on the sow. And the sow began remembering all down her thick length from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of her tail. From the hard spininess spiked out from her spine down through the great broken heart to the sheer blue milk and dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the fourteen teats into the fourteen mouths sucking and blowing beneath them. The long perfect loveliness of Sal. To begin to remember, to be reminded and to remember the goodness, the loveliness of our being, of our heart, of how deeply we care, of how tender we are as beings, all of us, you, me, each and every one of us, how sensitive, how vulnerable, how sweet we can be. And yet to see also that in the face of a world that at times is so threatening, so challenging, so harsh, so violent, so cruel, so tragically conflicted, it seems, that we all in our life experience pain and experience harm, experience danger. And as a result, we tend to get caught in reactivity. We tend to close down. We tend to easily lose touch with the profound tenderness and openness of our being. And what we can notice as we practice this meditation, and it's very common for people to report, and it's actually not accidental that they do so, that what is arising is not a sense of tenderness or warmth or friendliness or loving kindness and all that sweet, juicy, warm stuff that that guy at the front seems to be rabbiting on about but, you know, it doesn't seem to relate to my experience. I'm feeling irritated or bored or disinterested or angry. And it somehow doesn't seem like that's right. That's not what I came here for. They didn't call this a weekend of irritation, boredom and anger. I wouldn't have signed up for that. That's what I came here to get away from. And yet, of course, all of this is really the armoring, the defensive mechanisms and the, the kind of the layering that happens around our heart as a way of coping with life and its difficulty. And here, when we practice, it comes up naturally because as it comes up, it's in the process of beginning to actually open. As we begin to open, rather than immediately opening into some blissful, sweet place of tenderness, of course it would be nice, and maybe it'll happen, sure it does, but often the way it happens is through these places of real sharp spikiness, or scariness, or just something shocking. A good friend of mine reported once after an extended period of uh, loving-kindness meditation, she was uh, visualizing this dear little baby and wishing it well, sending it loving-kindness, and she was imagining herself holding it really close to her heart. And then in, in her image, she saw herself 
headbutt. <laughs> and she was totally shocked by this. It wasn't, you know, it completely out of the blue, this aggression to this little being. Like, and like, ah. Oh. And yet understanding that this is part of the territory we have to travel. She didn't give up on her meditation, I'm pleased to say. But to see that something like that can happen, it's like this, the territory of our kindness and our tenderness is very close together with the territory of our reactivity. Because our, our reactivity is so much about trying to protect ourselves. It's actually very close to our caring because it's about trying to protect ourselves from being hurt because we care about ourselves. And yet we don't necessarily understand until we've begun to explore our experience, until we've perhaps been fortunate to hear spiritual teachings and engage in practice such as we're doing here, we don't really understand necessarily how it is that it arises and that it doesn't service that reactivity. So we can't seem to free ourselves from it because at some level it's just happening to us, we don't know why, and at another level we somehow believe that we need to hold on to that anger or that reactivity because it's defending me or it's protecting me from something worse. And so we, we deeply yearn for love and to be loved. We deeply wish for this in our hearts, to be open, and yet it's not easy for us. Often what we think is that we want to be loved. And in order to be loved, we need to be loving. There may be some truth in that, but I think actually more important than being loved is that we actually need to love. But we tend to fear that we can only love if we are loved, because only then is it safe to do so. Only when we feel that there are no dangers around us can we allow our hearts to be open. But there is no time, there is no place in which we will be entirely free of danger. Because the nature of being alive is that we are subject to the impingement of life. And some of that is hard, some of that is harsh, some of that is challenging. And if we somehow aren't willing to open our hearts until it's all soft and all safe and all predictable and all controllable around us, then we'll spend our life trying to control and fix and predict everything without ever succeeding. And along the way miss a precious and profound opportunity. Because we can, as human beings, learn to love unconditionally. We can learn to open our hearts and to trust in our own capacity to stay open in the face of all things, even those things that may be challenging or difficult. This isn't something that's going to happen overnight or in the course of a weekend retreat that we go from a place of being closed and contracted or tight or having some degree of access, and we all have, of course, some degree of access to this quality of loving, of kindness. If we didn't, we wouldn't be alive. We wouldn't and couldn't stay alive without it. But 
it's limited, it's constrained for us, and I think most of us can recognize that. And so, looking at this process to see what happens. How is it that we're not able to love unconditionally? How is it that although we might yearn to live with an open heart, we can't just do that as an act of intentional willpower. We can't just say, oh, okay, I'd like my heart to be open and it's open. And then a little while later, well, it's not so good around here. I think I'll have, better have it closed for a little while while I'm you know, walking down this dark street in the evening. Then I get home and I'm with my family. Let's have it open again. It doesn't work like that really, does it? A little bit maybe. But what tends to happen when it closes down is it closes down to all situations. And in this it's sort of like an imprisonment. Something deeply painful. Something deeply grievously painful, I would say, to us all. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to go to that place in our heart where it maybe is tender? Are we willing to explore this territory where it's not easy? In order to discover what's possible for us, for each of us, for you, and you, and you. Several years ago I was teaching a course at the Insight Meditation Society in Massey, in Barry, Massachusetts, in America. And uh, I was uh, walking, this was in uh, summertime, it was, a, it was a similar time of year to this. <laughs> it was bright and sunny and very pleasant. Um, I was walking on a path <laughs> down to the pond. And suddenly in front of me, a few paces ahead, I saw a large snake and I stopped dead still, as one might. And particularly coming from where I come from in New Zealand, where there are no snakes. Snakes are not part of your picture. So they're, they're kind of even more sort of like, whoa, than perhaps for someone who's, you know, been in a country where you might even occasionally see one. I mean, New Zealand, we don't even have slow worms, which, you know, I know they don't really count, but they look much the same. Um, anyway, I stopped dead still and I was looking at this Quite it looked like it was a you know a body about this fat across the path. I was like, oh. And uh, then I noticed it wasn't moving. So I slowly got a little bit of courage up and went a bit closer. And as I got closer, with my mind full of all these thoughts, because the Buddha's teachings are full of stories about snakes and ropes and getting confused between the two and the problems that happen if you confuse a rope with a snake or a snake with a rope, both of which are problematic. And that's perhaps a teaching for another time. But uh, on this occasion, I was thinking all about that. And as I got closer, it still wasn't moving. I was really curious, really interested in this. And then I saw, actually, it wasn't not a snake, but nor was it a snake. It was a snake skin. And I thought, oh, look at that. It's like some snake had slipped out of its skin just there, quite recently, I expect. I started to think, gosh, you know, what's that about? Why, why, why do you have to do that? I know, of course, when we think about it, we know snakes have to shed their skin. What is that? And I realized, oh, I'm sure you're familiar with this, but now in order to grow, a snake has to shed its skin. It's this beautiful protective shield that it has, these strong scales. And, this, and yet, 
it, in its protectiveness and its strength, it can't expand. So the snake in there can't grow. It's limited by this protection. And in order to grow, in order to survive, it has to peel the skin off itself and grow another one in order to grow. If it doesn't shed its skin, it will die. And yet when it sheds its skin, it, it must come out kind of pink and juicy and soft because there's no point coming out with another solid skin on the same size. It won't be any bigger, will it? So it must come out of that place of defendedness kind of soft, kind of open. And I thought, wow, you know, if some eagle flies past at the time, it's in trouble. It's going to be scary, but it has no choice. In order to stay alive and grow, it has to do this every year. And I thought this was really not that different than ourselves. How we have to go to those places that are sometimes tender. We have to feel and enter into that territory that's sometimes scary and vulnerable. And someone, you know, was writing to me in a note wondering about, is this a good idea? I'm not sure I really want to go there. And I can understand the question. Of course, what, do we really want to go to that place of vulnerability? But on the other hand, what's the cost of not doing that? It might seem scary or threatening to begin to open out of our enclosed space, begin to feel not just those things that might be sweet, but equally those things that might be painful or scary. But to not do so is to live imprisoned, limited, confined. And ultimately that's the deeper suffering in the situation. So to look at this experience of what happens, how is it that we find ourselves closing? And what is it that we need to do to open? So we really need to understand the nature of experience, of what happens in the closing and the opening of our heart. Pretty much everything we encounter in life we tend to classify into one of three things. I like it, give me more. I don't like it, get rid of it. And doesn't do anything for me, doesn't do anything to me, not interested. We tend to relate to pretty much everything when we're in our normal habitual mode, unconscious, in that way. We tend to say, I like it, I want it, give me more. It's pleasant, it's sweet, it's delightful, it's flattering, give me more. But we can't always get more. We feel frustrated, we feel annoyed. Perhaps we blame ourselves. We think, something wrong with me. Or there's something wrong with you that you didn't give it to me. We get caught up in anger and reactivity because it's not the way we want it to be. <coughs> or there's something that's painful, that's difficult, that's scary, that's threatening. We don't like it. We want it to go away, but sometimes it doesn't. It doesn't go away. And we, again, we, we get angry, we feel upset. It's like, I want it to go away. We tend to blame ourselves. We think it's my fault. I should have made it go away. I shouldn't have come here in the first place. I shouldn't have got into this situation. Or they shouldn't have done this. Someone else shouldn't have done that. And then it wouldn't have happened. We tend to go into a reaction of blaming. And in that blaming, we're kind of like trying to protect ourselves from the pain of being exposed to that which we don't like. Or being separated from that which we do. And this experience we all encounter. 
And we need to understand that that particular reactivity closes us down. It, it compresses the heart. Pressures us. And it's incredibly excruciating when we really feel what it's doing to us. That reaction. And so, we need to look at this. We need to be aware of this in our life. The practice of loving-kindness and this cultivation of caring and friendliness is informed by understanding, by recognizing and understanding the dynamic that operates in the mind when we're not present, when we're not conscious. And when we're not actively engaging with the possibility of opening towards our experience, opening into the way things are which is sometimes lovely, and of course we can receive that when it's so, but equally as sometimes is really painful or difficult, and we need to be able to open to that too. We need to see how we position ourselves in relationship to our experience. And with regard to the uh, difficult experience we can ex encounter, I'd like to read you a piece uh, from a talk that was given by one of my uh, favorite teachers, and uh, man, I feel fortunate to regard also as a friend, Ajahn Suchito, who's the uh, abbot of the, the monastery in uh, Chithurst in, in Sussex in England, a Buddhist monastery. He's uh, an Englishman, and uh, he'd been uh, traveling in India for some time when he came to the, uh, the temple in Budgaya, where I was attending a retreat, and uh, at least uh, one or two people were here at the time. Uh, also, you may remember this talk, but uh, were there at the time that I see in this room. But anyway, he said, in the context of the talk, something I really loved, and so I uh, copied it out and asked him if it was okay to share it with people. And uh, he said that was fine. He said, and so I'm reading out, these are his words now. He said, many years ago I had this particular pain in my right shoulder. I would sit pain, I would think, be with the pain, that will do it. Here am I, being with the pain, being with the pain, it's not working, you know, maybe I need to do some yoga. That's got it. Oh, oh no. Maybe the cushion, one cushion, two cushions, three, four. Maybe if I angle them to the left or to the right, it's not working. Doctor, you've got to help me. Chiropractor, osteopath, physiotherapist. For five years I had this pain. I had an extremely active and ingenious mind at trying to find out every possible way to wriggle out of the fact that pain hurts and I don't like it. A very obvious truth. Yet I hadn't actually come to that, accepted what one glosses over in a few words, I don't like pain. Instead I had acted on, I don't like pain. I hadn't actually examined the experience of not liking pain. I'd try to think, well, you should like pain, pain is good for you, or pain is bad, make it go away. But I hadn't really looked into, I do not like. So one day, sitting in meditation, I thought, this is it, the showdown. I'm going to sit here for five hours and I'm going to get over this thing. Pain, pain, wriggle, wriggle. Why did I say that? Why five hours? After all, the middle way, moderation and all that. Hours go by, one hour, two hours, three hours, three hours and one minute. 
After about four hours, I was so sick of this pain. My mind had been through all the various circuits of be nice to it, be friendly with it, kill it, and came back to, oh God, this pain. He was a Buddhist, I mean, I know where God came from, but oh God, this pain. And finally the mind just rested. It got tired out, I guess, eventually. Ignorance does get tired after a while and has to take a break from being ignorant. Instead of ignoring it and repressing it, actually began to open to it. Without that, let's open to it and make it go away. Or let's open to it and then I'll go into some kind of cosmic space. But just, oh, all right. Then I began to see this sensation throbbing away. And it began to appear in my mind as a kind of glowing light. Throbbing, tearing. A tearing experience. And then because of the choiceless attention to it, I began to notice, well, there's that. And then there's this terrible kind of, no, 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 feeling going on. Resistance. And with that, a whole lot of bitterness towards the body. Bitterness towards pain. Oh, pain, I don't like it. It shouldn't happen to me. What did I do? I'm sitting here trying to be peaceful. Pain, go away. This kind of moaning mind. And as I contemplated my relationship to the sensation, it became clear to me that there was nothing I could do with the sensation. But I could stop beating it with my mind. I began to have this experience of deep regret for all the beatings and the kickings that this mind had imposed upon life, upon this body, upon itself, upon its own thoughts, telling it to shut up, telling it to be this way, to be that way. And I felt like this whole system was like some mangy dog that had never really been loved, that had just been told what to do and beaten. And in fact, this vision arose in my mind of this dog, a kind of mangy, hungry, skinny wolf, looking at me saying, how much longer are you going to keep beating me for? I felt the sense of deep regret that there should be so much intolerance and hardness towards life. And in my mind's eye, something in me reached out to this creature and started to pat it to say, please forgive me. And then this creature turned into a cartoon dog. I always think of Scooby-Doo. It's just my idea. It turns into a cartoon dog and we were dancing. Me and the pain. Me and the dog and the pain. And then the whole thing just exploded. Very gently. And the pain disappeared. It seemed to say, thank you. Finally. I've been knocking on your door for five years. Thank you for opening. Thank you for recognizing that the problem was, I do not like, I will not accept, I will not open to you. And then once you open, the lesson is learned, and the business is finished. Of course, when we hear a story like that, and uh, one that I think is rather wonderful, it's easy to listen to it and think, oh, that's how you do it. That's how you fix it. You just open to it and then it goes away. But of course, if you're opening it to make it go away, you're not really opening to it. Opening the heart isn't to make something happen to the thing you're opening to. It's to open because we understand that that openness is most precious and important. To bring that capacity to your life, to your experience, to each moment and to each being that you encounter. When we open to pain in this way, 
when we allow ourselves to feel the sorrows and the challenges and the difficulties and the failures, and yes, we've all had them. It's not just you. We sometimes think it must be just me. Everyone else is getting on fine. Somehow it's my life that's got all messed up. But no, everyone encounters this. It's a bit like when we're sitting in meditation, we look around and we think, gosh, everyone else looks really calm and serene. They're probably having really deep and profound feelings of loving kindness for all beings. But me, I'm just sitting here feeling irritated and bored and want to go home. We think that's what's going on for everyone else, but after that goes on for a few moments, we sit down, close our eyes, or we look down and close our eyes, and then a moment later someone else opens their eyes and looks over at us, and, wow, that person's really calm. Wow, their heart's probably full of, full of love and joy and sweetness right now. We don't know what's going on, but you know, most of what's going on for you is what's going on for everyone else. And I know, because I hear about it. It's, it's like that, and I think you know too, because you hear about it as well. So there's the sense of seeing, oh yeah, this is what happens. It's not because something's wrong, but perhaps because we haven't understood how to respond to what is happening. And so, allowing ourselves to be touched by that which is tender, that which is painful, that which is sometimes scary or unsettling, <coughs> is actually a precondition for opening the heart, for allowing our hearts to move more freely, to dance in our lives. Because it's not a selective organ. What I mean by that is you can't choose to close down selectively to things you want to close down to and not close down to the things you don't want to close down to. When it closes down, it closes down to everything. And when it opens, it opens to everything. So if you want to open to love and to kindness and to care and connection, you have to equally be willing to open to the experience of, of sadness, of sorrow, of vulnerability. Not that these are fixed or solid experiences that you are then going to be stuck in or defined by, but that one can learn to accommodate them and meet them with kindness. And to see that the people we encounter in our lives and the way we relate to them is very much influenced by this primary dynamic. Those that we feel warmth and tenderness towards, that we love and appreciate, are those from whom we've received that which is sweet and lovely and uplifting. And those whom we find difficult, or we dislike, or we resist, or don't want anything to do with, are those from whom we've, or with whom we've had experiences that are painful or scary or threatening to us. And of course, many people are a mixture of both of these together. And so it's really complicated, it's really hard to know. How am I going to be with them? In the practice of the loving-kindness meditation, we try and make it simple. We're not disregarding those places that are harmful or dangerous. It's fine to be clear that we say, I need to protect myself in certain circumstances and to do what's necessary but to understand that the deepest protection we can offer ourselves is the commitment to keeping our heart open, to not getting caught in blaming and judgment in reactivity towards ourselves or others, which would somehow justify the closing of the heart, the rejecting of others, the rejecting of ourselves or parts of ourselves.
And so to open we need to understand that all that causes harm, all that leads us to believe, <coughs> to identify with the, the reaction that suggests we should close down, we should disconnect, we should reject, is born of somehow believing that we or others at the core of the being are not really born of something, or not really connected with something profoundly wholesome. When we stop, when we fail to see that, when we fail to understand that, that all beings, that all life arises out of something that is profoundly wholesome. When we can't see that anymore because we've focused on the particular things that are difficult or painful or harmful or threatening within a person or a situation or ourselves, Then we separate, we disconnect, we close off. And this aspect of our being we could describe as loving-kindness loses its, its capacity to touch and to, to fill the space that appears between us in which we seem to be separate but in fact ultimately we are not separate in. And that this quality of love is actually, it is in some ways the bridge that fills the space between the apparent separate being that sits here and the one that sits there. And that when we know it deeply and truly, it is the nature of love and of kindness to, to not be reinforcing and in fact to be dissolving the sense of that separateness, that disconnection. The nature of kindness is that it treats all things as we ourselves would wish to be treated because we understand that we are not different, that they are not different than we. That all things partake of this life in the same way. And to understand this is to understand something profound. To understand that at the heart of our life, at the heart of, of existence, is something profoundly wholesome. Not something, not a thing, but nonetheless neither nothing. And that the way this is revealed, the way we can recognize this, is in the very presence of that loving-kindness itself. That we cannot manufacture, that we don't produce or make happen, but which we can connect with, which we can discover, like tapping into a well, or discovering a spring or an underground stream that's always been there but yet not recognized, not seen, not understood. And allowing the water of that, that well or that spring to, to really flow in our life. The Buddha once spoke of 
of this practice of loving kindness in a way that for many of us I think is kind of shocking. He said, even though you may be being sawn in half by bandits using a two-handled saw, if you should seek to have other than loving kindness in your heart for those beings, those bandits, you would not be a follower of my teaching. This is kind of challenging. <laughs> I don't imagine any of us would wish to uh, check out the development or the progress of our practice in this particular way. And I'm not suggesting you need to. But there's something in this. It's, it's not that the Buddha is necessarily saying that we're going to feel full of uh, gratitude, appreciation and blissful sort of tenderness towards those beings. But really, and it's certainly not that he's saying that if you couldn't escape from that situation, you shouldn't. It's not saying, you know, just give up. But what he's saying is if that's what's happening and that's where you're at, and I think that presupposes that you didn't really have any option because I suspect you wouldn't have volunteered, where do you want to be in the last moments of your life? Where do you want to be in the last moments of your life? Would you want to have the choice to be in a place of caring, of kindness? Or would you wish that the place to be would be in fear or anger or reactivity? Because for all of us, when we come to the end of our life, that which we have cultivated is what will, that which will be available to us. That which we have given our time and our energy to bringing forth within ourselves is the resource that we will have, that will be accessible. And the journey of our life, in some ways, is a journey of many small deaths, many moments of loss, of grief, of change, of transformation. And what we need to meet those moments with is loving kindness. What we need to, to live in this world is friendliness and caring. And as we more and more begin to align our hearts and align our lives with this, we find that our life also comes into harmony with the way things are. Because in the truth of life, all of, all of what we call our own hearts are expressions of something larger, something vaster, something greater, that we could only call life itself. And it is the nature of this life that it could equally just be described as love, as caring. And so we practice to bring forth from ourselves what is possible, to more and more fully embody and live this capacity that is within us all.
so may we all deepen in our heart's capacity for loving kindness and care. May we all come to live more and more deeply in accord with the way things are. And may the lives and the hearts of all beings be touched by loving kindness. <coughs> 